starting in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. You are sovereign. You are holy and you are just. You are creator, sustainer, and taker of life. Our hands, our lives are safe within the hollow of your hand. We cannot be plucked from you. We cannot be destroyed. We cannot be touched. Because our Father in heaven is sovereign over all. But Father, we confess that often we are confused and we are bewildered and we don't understand and we trust what our eyes can see and what our hands can touch and what our ears can hear. And we doubt the character of God and we listen to the whispers of the enemy that said, did God really say? Father, as we come before you, we pray that we would quiet our heart and submit to your word, that we would hear through the power of your Holy Spirit and to see the character of God, to see uh, our uh, character in, our, in light of that, and that we would seek to be like Christ, that our emotions would be uh, caught on fire, that our passions would be to know Christ, that we would be uh, pushed to go and to make known what you have done. Father, inhabit the praises of your people. Use the words this morning in the proclamation of a difficult text. Show us Christ. Change our hearts that we may worship and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This sermon text this morning is a difficult one. Sometimes there are, are sermons where the texts are difficult because you have to communicate the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean armed only with a Dixie cup. There are times when there are sermon topics that are awkward in mixed company and you have to speak in Morse code. There are also times when sermons are difficult because they say things that you, or they don't say what you want it to say. This morning's text is the latter. We are back in Colossians, and as we settle back in in the final chapter, we are seeing where Paul is writing this letter to a group of believers in a city, and he is showing them um, how the gospel, the life of Christ, changes their everyday world. And he uses a common uh, first century uh, structure of writing to do that in what was known as household codes. 
But what Paul does is he uses a common uh, genre or means to be able to radically confirm Uh, transform the life of these believers to show them how the gospel, when it is injected into everyday life, changes things. And as we saw a few weeks, probably back in November, a few weeks where... Andrew, did you plug that into the top one or the bottom one? Yeah. Technology is fantastic because it communicates and it adds another learning ability, but also technology can be a little squirrely. If you would unplug that and plug that right above that monitor right there. There, good. Ultimately, this is my big idea, again, as we try to get back on track. Um, These are the kind of things they tell you about in seminary. They don't always go the way you plan. Uh, But we're in the book of Colossians, and my big idea this morning that is actually recycled from the earlier text, and we're going to elaborate that as we finish up this passage, is that the life of Christ transforms our lives with others. Now, as a way of sort of getting back and going back to what we saw, how the gospel, when it's injected into everyday life, transforms that, we saw that in verses 18 and 19, the gospel changes our marriages. That, uh, and he speaks to an individual members of the home. And he speaks to the wives. And in a, in a first century, when the wives were inferior members of the family, they show how Paul shows how the gospel demonstrates that wives are not inferior, but they're necessary allies in bringing glory to the Lord. That they are endowed with unique gifting and callings and strengths and abilities to be able to strengthen the home and to be able to support the, uh, the gospel in that home. And that happens when the wife, as an equal, says, I will choose to love and support and submit to my husband's loving and faithful leadership. Not leadership in the first century that was heavy-handed and domineering, but a leadership that is in scene when the gospel transforms the light, where the husband loves self-sacrificially and puts the needs of his wife before his own, just as Christ put the needs of his bride before his own. See, that was radical in the first century, that women had value and that men were not just chauvinistic, barbaric, drag their wives around by their hair, but they were self-sacrificial and loving. And you see the gospel transformed that in the marriages of Christians. But then you also see how the gospel transforms families, how children are called to obey their parents. I let the cat out of the bag there. Children are called to obey their parents as a means of obeying God. And they do that by obeying and honoring and loving and listening to their parents. And fathers, he speaks to, and we can also say mothers as well, are to love their children and and reach their heart, not heavy-handedly, not by brute force, but tenderly reaching their heart for the gospel. And as we look at that, we see marriages and families, that it, it, it transforms how we look. But then we get to the final uh, group of people. 
And we see, as the ESV says, bond servants, and quite honestly, a better translation of this word is slaves. If you have an NIV, if you have a New American Standard, you see the word slaves. And you see slave masters. And so when you see this, this is probably the most foreign to us and the most uncomfortable to us. And he's, Paul is giving instructions to these people. And we're saying, as a 21st century person, I don't want the gospel to transform slavery. I want the gospel to eradicate slavery. So scripture is not saying what I want it to say. And that's where we have to do one of three things. We have to say at first, we can throw it away and say that it is complicit with slavery and I'm done with it. Or like we talked about in Sunday school, as Jefferson would do, just cut it out and, and throw it aside and keep the things he likes. We could also make excuses for it, as we say in uh, hermeneutical backbends and say, well, it's not like it really was and this and that. We can make excuses, but the reality is Paul is writing to slaves and slave masters. Or we can let it say what it says. So what I'm going to do is I'm, before I go on to uh, elaborate on my preaching outline, I want to give you two parenthetical thoughts. I'm not going to charge you anything extra for this, but I want to, there's no really good way, how do we address slavery in a sermon? So what I want to do is I want to give you some parenthetical thoughts, maybe I stand over here while I do it, uh, or something like that, but I want to talk about slavery and I want to talk about how we then as 21st century believers apply such a text where there is really no context and no application. We have to do some digging in the background, and we see the word slave, we immediately think of the 17th to the 19th century, and the, uh, where slavery predominantly in the antebellum south, and slavery in the first century context of where our readers were. And modern day slavery, which in the antebellum south in the United States and in the west, was human trafficking that was strictly based on race. Untold Africans were stolen from their homeland, Sierra Leone that we're praying for and others. They were bound by chains around their necks and their feet and they were put into horrific conditions within a, a slave ship and they were sold by heartless owners as animals to be able to be used and exhausted to do a job and when it was completed they would be tossed aside. The blood of countless innocent African men and women will forever stain the hands of Christian forefathers who participated in or were silent and turned a blind eye to the barbary and the depravity of that institution. But when we turn into this text this morning, we have to understand that Paul is not writing to colonial America or Civil War America. Paul is writing to the first century. And though there was slavery, there were a lot of differences and similarities, but there were also differences. The slavery in the first century when Colossians was written was not based on race, but it was actually a social class. Slaves were either captured in battle and rather than executed, they were brought into Rome or they were uh, those who were so financially destitute that they would sell their children into slavery or they themselves would be sold into slavery for a fixed period of time. 
And slaves worked in everywhere, in every imaginable place, from um, households to mines to factories and banks and farms. And unlike the uh, African slaves of the South, if you were to walk through Rome in the first century, you, there is no difference in their speech, in their dress, or their appearance. So much so that the Senate, the Roman Senate, wanted to pass a, a law that said that slaves had to wear different clothes or an identifying mark, but it was quickly shot down because of the percentages of slaves were so high in Rome. They said if the slaves could count how many people they have, they would immediately revolt and overthrow us. But slavery in the first century also wasn't permanent. Slaves could be set free by their masters and a slave could even buy his or her own freedom and they could go on to be significant members of society. And it's very interesting in church history, three of the popes in the first and second century were former slaves as well. And at one point, there were so many slaves that were being released in Rome, in the Roman Empire at the time, Augustus had to make a law that we can't keep releasing this many slaves. And he said that, before 30, the slave could not be released. But we can say that the chattel slavery of the antebellum South and the West was not the same as first century slavery, but it was still uh, as gruesome, there was still gruesome, and it was commonplace for owners to dehumanize and to abuse and to mistreat their slaves. Because the slaves were lowly and they were powerless to be able to uh, fight back or be represented in society. And even if a slave found his freedom, often the stigma of being a former slave was something that haunted them for the rest of their lives. And if you spend any time, and I really struggled this week in my study and looking at the cultural background of slavery... The dark history of slavery gives us a glimpse of what the heart of man, the sinful heart of man, is capable of doing. So, with that being said, as we approach Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1, it almost feels like the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter and etc., are actually approving of slavery because they don't immediately call for its abolition. Two thoughts on that. First, and again, this is no extra charge. You can write this in the column of your Bible and, and you know, use that someday. Because often it's when the new atheists attack the church, they go to passages like this. They don't go to the Sermon on the Mount. They go to slavery. What at first reading feels like Paul is supporting First, slavery is an institution of a fallen world. We realize that the God's intention in creation is not slavery, and the gospel tells us that God, who is making all things new, is not moving towards slavery. And in fact, in Revelation, it says the new heaven and new earth, there will be no one to buy slaves because the people of God have been changed and their hearts have been washed and renewed. The slavery is a product of the sinful heart of man and the fall of man. The gospel itself reassures us and towards the end of the story in Revelation chapter 9 that it, the people of God is not based on race or class or education, but it is black and white, Asian and Middle Eastern and Latino. 
poor and rich, educated and simple, powerful and powerless, all belong to God. And it's the joy of Revelation chapter 7 that says this, After this I, John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. He's looking across the courts of heaven who are praising their Savior, the Lamb that was slain, who redeemed it. And he said, from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language, they were standing before the throne um, clothed in clean white robes, which symbolizes holiness, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As Christians, we cannot be colorblind because heaven is not colorblind, but it is clothed in a rich array of brown and black and white, beautiful colors of the people of this world, men and women, uh, poor and rich, slave and free, who have been redeemed from the bondage of a fallen world and now stand in the presence of their holy maker. Second, slavery is a product of a sinful, prideful heart. It is a symptom Man's prideful how it it's the heart of man that produces the bigotry and the hatred and the pride that fuels oppression. Oppression that believes they have the right to enslave people. Pride, when left unchecked, convinces individuals and groups and societies and cultures that they can oppress and they can dehumanize people. Because if you can deny their personhood, you can justify any treatment. So you got a little sticky in the American South when they denied the personhood of the African people in order to enslave them, but their economic issues said, well, if we want to write them off on our taxes, we have to consider them three-fifths a person. Do you see the evil and the wickedness that a, a heart will justify and do when we deny their personhood because of the pride of the heart? And what that leads is that leads to the enforcement of the will of a twisted, prideful heart rather than submitting to the will of our Heavenly Father. But as we read through history in the pages of American history and Western his history, we see that though the slaves have been freed, the prideful, sinful heart of the oppressors of the, uh, still have remained largely unchecked for nearly two centuries. We've come a long way, baby, as the song goes, but we still have a lot to work on. And what happens is that prideful, excuse me, that prideful heart bubbles up when conflict arises. Sometimes when we don't even expect it and we realize we're not as good and, and uh, peaceful as we think we are. Even though Wilberforce's Slavery Abolition Act of 1834 and Lincoln's 13 Amendments in 1865 abolished the symptom of slavery, the problem, which is the sinful heart of man, still beats strong. Only the gospel is able to change prideful, sinful hearts. 
Therefore, when Paul sits down and writes this letter, and he writes what we see as instructions to slave masters, he's not writing to uphold the institution of slavery, though admittedly, through the history of the church, this text has been twisted and perverted. Read Frederick Douglass's narrative uh, that you see how slave masters twisted such words. He's not writing to uphold the institution of slavery, but he's writing to transform the heart of slave masters. And when the prideful heart of slave masters is changed by the gospel, slavery itself implodes upon itself. With that being said, this is the very argument that Paul writes through the book of Philemon, which is actually a companion book of Colossians that we're going to see in a month or two. But Paul urges Philemon, who is a slaveholder, and Onesimus, who is a runaway slave, who goes to Rome and aids Paul. But Paul says, I am sending you back so that that restoration can happen by the gospel. No longer slave and slave master, but brothers. And this is the very words of Philemon, verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And notice how the conditions that Paul writes and urges and tries to reach his heart, no longer as a slave, a doulos, or as our text says, bondservant, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, an image bearer of God. Those that have been redeemed from every tribe and every tongue and every nation by the lamb that was slain. So you see the New Testament writers were working to abolish the assumptions and the prejudices that undergirded and was the foundation of slavery in order because the world itself was built on the institution of slavery. So that, my first um, parenthetical thought and then a real quick one when you're a pastor and you're committed to not skip things because if I like to skip things and I like to go through a whole book I would skip this bam done go on to chapter four it's about praying yeah but I I pulled out my hair I weeped and wailed and gnashed my teeth because how do I as a pastor take such a text and be able to uh, apply it and make it relevant to your life because as far as I know there are no slaves and slave masters in this room this morning how can I take it and make it relevant to your lives what I did and what I hope I pray that I'm faithful and I believe I am is to do take the cultural application of this text and peel that back and behind the cultural application of that text are gospel principles that are driving it. Gospel principles that you take those gospel principles and then be able to take it out of that culture and insert it and apply it in our culture that's devoid of modern day slavery in here. Though there are slaveries that exist in our world, I'm not preaching to those that are in that, that context. I'm preaching to 21st century Jack's Beach Jacksonville people. Therefore, I want you to see this. The life of Christ transforms our life with others in our work. 
in our work that has a very distinct authority that exists there. And and I've been very careful as I go through this. And when the gospel changes how we work, we work and it brings glory to the Lord. And when we seek to bring glory to the Lord, we work with diligence and we work with a view on eternity that's coming. We work for the glory of God with diligence and with a view for eternity. So with that being said, we turn to verse 22, to the gospel principle of that we work with diligence as a people that belong to God. Notice what it says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Ocean Park, I want you to know this morning that your identity is more significant. Your identity in Christ is more significant than your identity to your employer. Your identity in Christ is more important than your identity to your employer. You may work for the government or for the grocery store. You may teach children, you may answer phones, or you may care for the sick. You may sell cleaning products, you may sell homes, or you may sell medical supplies. You may be in customer service, customer retention, or customer acquisition. You may create things or demolish things. You may fix things or you may improve things. Whatever you do and whatever it is that you find your work identity in, that identity does not surpass the identity in the fact that you belong to Jesus. Now, for those of you who are retired, take notes and help those who are not retired, okay? No, not one of you. And and this understanding that our identity in Christ is um, penultimate, or ultimate, excuse me, is surpasses our identity in other things. We belong to Jesus. And no one needed more reminder of this than the slaves in the household slaves that Paul was writing to. Because they were constantly told time and time again, you belong to me. And often the eyes that the slaves looked in were mean and cold and calloused and condescending. But Paul writes to the slaves and and reminds them, you belong to Jesus. And when somebody, and those of you who have had bad employers, I've had some really good ones and I've had some wretched ones. Lawn master in high school, that was brutal. But I remember those, how often when you have a bad boss or authority or something, it's very easy for you to justify shoddy, half-hearted work that only happens when you're within eye shot of your supervisor or your authority. But the, the difference is when you belong to Jesus, you can never justify shoddy, half-hearted, dishonest work. Because I want you to notice what is, what is bracketing this already and, and, and setting this household codes up is that everything we do, notice verse 17, whatever you do, whether word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. So whatever you're doing in word or deed, 
It is to the glory of the Father and in thanks to Christ. For you and I, this means putting in an honest day's work for the glory of Jesus. But remember the context this is written in. This context was written to slaves who were 24-7 being treated this way. And for the slave, it meant glorifying the Lord, even doing the unimaginable, unenviable duties of being a slave. Ocean Park, do everything for the glory of Christ does not transform uh, wearisome tasks to pleasurable tasks. I wish it did. I wish I could tell you when you glorify Jesus, it's wonderful to clean toilets. Woohoo! It still stinks. I've done it. I did it for many years. But what it does is it, when you belong to Jesus and you're doing everything for the glory of Christ, it takes the most mundane task and it infuses it with the glory of Christ. So there is nothing in the kingdom, in the world that you do that's exempt from the glory of Jesus. We are called as Christians who belong to Jesus to work diligently for the glory of Christ. And Paul gives three unique elements to that. One is obedience, one is with sincerity of heart, and one is fearing the Lord. And if you notice as it continue, obedience in all things. Those who seek to glorify Christ must obey the authorities, both good and bad, that God has put in your life. Now, behind that, there is, understandably, that the commands that your authorities give you are not calling you to sin. Just as it says, uh, wives submit to your husbands. Wives are not called to submit to a husband's sin and foolishness. They're called to follow their husband's leadership and initiative in the home. They're not called to submit to his sin. And same thing with these slaves. They're not called to submit to the sin of their slave masters, but though sometimes it is done against their will, and we can see it so many times in the history, in the, the repugnant history of slavery. As Christians, we are called to obey the authority that is aligned with the law of God, and it is not optional. We're called to obey. We're also called to obey with sincerity of heart. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Those who don't belong to Jesus don't obey as a form of flattery or as a means to, to manipulate a reward or conditioned only when the supervisor is watching. Obedience that glorifies Christ is obedient that is motivated by a heart that seeks to glorify God in their obedience, no matter what and how mundane the task may be. Because ultimately, you see, they're called to obey with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And it continues, fear the Lord. When a Christian pays deference to the commands of the authorities in their life, the earthly authorities, as the text says, that obedience to earthly authorities is elevated as obedience to our Lord. If Christian slaves, I want you to remember the context this is written in, if Christian slaves in the first century were expected to work heartily out of reverence for the Lord to their slave masters, every 
Christian, every one of us here this morning is called to obedience as a work of honor to our Lord. How do you work, Ocean Park? Are you a kiss-up when the boss is around, but when the boss leaves, you're a slacker? Do you do absolute minimum to be able to get by when your boss, get your boss off your back? Do you only work as a way to get a reward and be recognized by management? Or are you working as an act of worship that brings Christ glory because you belong to him? Every single one of us has the temptation to work only to be noticed or to get by with as little work as possibly. And as Christians who belong to Jesus, this simply can't be. Because we don't honor and, and magnify the name of Christ. We bring his shame. Those who belong to Christ work for his glory at all times and in all tasks. We are called to give wholehearted service in our workplaces under all condition because diligent work brings glory to who we belong to, Jesus Christ. So we're called to work diligently, but we're also called to work today with a view for eternity. Notice verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Slaves, more than any other people, were compelled to work by the th constant threat of punishment. You're going to get it. It was said over and over, and they got it. Often arbitrarily, often capriciously, often without reason. If you read the journals of literate slaves who tell the horrors of masters who cruelly whipped them and left them under the constant threat of punishment for the most trivial of things, they realized they had no place and no power and their identity is that they belong to a cruel, heartless, vindictive master. One misstep and they would receive punishment. Yet this is where the promise of the gospel is injected and it changes everything and it transforms it. Yet the promise of the gospel is that the very slaves who in the eyes of the world had no legal standing and nor did they receive fair wages if they received any, had a rich reward and an inheritance in Christ. Because they belonged to Jesus, they could do the heartless, thankless work with a promise. You will receive an inheritance. Ocean Park, whatever vocation you find yourself in, you are working for the Lord. You're not working for recognition, for rewards, or for compensation. You work for the Lord and not for men. 
And I'll tell you, this is very easy, very easy to lose sight of what you're doing. And in the moment of it, you have resentment and bitterness, and it's not fair. I can tell you that because before I came here, I worked at AT&T for 12 years. Graduated uh, from college, came to, the, uh, came to the United States, came to the South, or came to Jacksonville, here, this area. And um, I worked as a, I taught Bible for a year, and then when Anna was born, I had to get a, a job that actually paid at least minimum wage, maybe more. And um, so I took a job at AT&T and I worked part-time as a janitor, got up at five in the morning, went to the west side and, and scrubbed toilets. Um, and what I did is from eight to four, I, and every moment of my day was managed down to the minute, literally. I sorted out billing errors that had been made a mess. I cleaned up behind telemarketers who just lied. Everything they did was lying. And then I got screamed at by old ladies in West Palm Beach and Boca Raton who said their bill was 23 cents more than it was last month. And I knew when 561 and 954 came on the line, I cringed because I was going to get a tongue lashing. And I remember I struggled in those years, and Denise can attest that I was going, I was at AT&T, and I was also working through, through seminary, and I struggled for significance because I was doing billing errors, and I was selling caller ID, and I was like, what difference does this make in the kingdom? And this is where having a godly wife who is wise and tender to not necessarily slap me upside the head but point me in the right direction reminded me that God had brought me to the season of life where I was and my value was not being recognized by management or appreciated by my co-workers or or um, uh, respected by my my customers what mattered the most in those years of putting on a headset every day and being yelled at and trying to meet sales objectives and all that stuff with management that did not appreciate you unless you gave them more and more and more. What mattered the most is that I was serving Christ faithfully with integrity day in and day out. And I wasn't lying to meet my service goals and I was cleaning up messes, not transferring them to Spanish collections like everybody else did. But I was doing my job and I was working for the glory of Christ. And I could do that even though I struggled with the difficulty of that because I did not belong to myself, I belonged to Jesus. Ocean Park, you may find yourself this morning in a place where you don't necessarily want to be. You feel like you're running on the hamster wheel, you're underpaid, you're overworked, and you're underappreciated. Your manager is antagonistic, your coworkers are standoffish, and the customers are overbearing. The gospel tells you to take heart. When you belong to Christ, the applause of heaven does not de depend on the perspectives of this world. We are working with eternity in mind. Your not, value is not found in how the world sees you, what you can produce or what you can create or what you can achieve. Your value is in the fact that you belong to Jesus. I think it was last week, yeah, 
Scott Hughes preached last week, and he preached out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, writing to the believers who were anticipating Peter's writing, a fiery trial is coming. You've already anticipated or already experienced suffering and pain, but he says this, worship, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. He has given you life and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what is that hope. That hope is not in the changing of your situations that you find yourselves in, the mundane and the drudgery. Your hope is this, that you have an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, an inheritance that can't be touched by hackers, it can't be uh, embezzled by dishonest people, and it cannot be stolen from you because it is kept in heaven. And that inheritance self is not the pearly gates and streets of gold. That inheritance is a relationship with God and being in union and love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all the tribes and tongues and nations who have put their trust in the promises of God for eternity. That is your inheritance ocean park and paul writes your inheritance O slave is not in the treatment that you receive your inheritance is that you belong to jesus and they can take your comfort they can take your freedom but they cannot take the promise of the inheritance of jesus christ amen that glory whatever you do In whatever area that the Lord leads you, you have an inheritance that is waiting for you. Not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Because I promise you, you will fail. You know why? Because I know I do. You will not meet expectations because I know I don't. You fall short of the glory of God, but it is not what you do, what you bring to the table, not your potential, it's what Jesus has done and it's trusting in the work of Jesus, resting, as Scott said, in Christ. And when we find our identity and significance in Christ, his shoulders are strong to hold our identity and all the things, our work and our spouse and our children are freed up from the crushing expectations. And we can have joy because of Christ. The life of Christ transforms our life with others. It transforms our marriages. It transforms our family. And it transforms our work. We work unto the glory of Christ, but we also work in the manner of Christ. And as time is quickly waning this morning, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. A few months ago, I read the uh, narrative of uh, the life of Frederick Douglass. He was the great abolitionist during the Civil War, and he was a free slave. And at writing at the end of his life, he said that if he was ever reduced again to the chains of slavery, he writes, and I quote, the greatest calamity that could befall me would to have a religious slave owner. 
For they are the meanest, and I quote, meanest and basest, the most cruel and cowardly of them all. And you would expect coming from maybe he was atheist or something else, but Douglas himself was a devout Christian man who loved the pure and peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ. And he hated the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land that plagued our country. Douglas's experience as a religious slaveholder who owned these people had a twisted belief that they had a God-given right of superiority over the slaves and the Africans in particular, and it could impose their prideful will on them. These so-called Christian masters did not have an understanding of the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. For the gospel reminds us that we are not endowed by, by God with any claim of righteousness or superiority. We don't have the right to impose our will on others. The only thing we deserve, brothers and sisters, is the penalty for our sinful rebellion against the righteousness and the holiness of God. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in the act of committing cosmic treason, Christ showed us compassion and laid his life down to give us life. A life that we neither deserve nor we desired. Ocean Park, if Christ has given you grace mercy and compassion you have no other option but to extend that grace and mercy and compassion to those around you especially those under your authority some of you are managers or some of you are bosses and you have authority with people underneath you you must lead them as christ leads his his disciples In the disciple group on Saturday, we read from John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, all authority has been given unto me, Jesus says, and that um, had come from heaven and was going back to the God, rose from supper at the, the, the last supper, hours before his betrayal and his execution. The master of the feast who had called it for Passover laid aside the garments of the master of the teacher, of the rabbi, and taking the towel of a slave, tied it around his waist, and he stooped and washed the feet of his disciples. The very thing that even the lowest of slaves in the house, only the lowest of slaves in the house would have done, the Lord and master of the feast, the maker of heaven and earth, who all things through him and for him and to him were created, washed the feet of his disciples. Not only that, but the very disciple that kissed him in betrayal and the disciple that denied him to a little girl at 12 or 13 years old who said, aren't you one of his? He says, I never knew him. You cannot receive the grace of God and refuse to extend that grace to your brother and sister, even if that person under your thor- is under your authority or somebody in whose society says is beneath you. It may be a relationship of a master or slave in this context, but it may be a boss or an employee. It may be a teacher or professor and a student. 
Those who find themselves in the position of control over others always should always seek to reflect Christ in the gospel and preserve the dignity and fairness and respect of those under their charge and refuse to treat people, as our culture does, as disposable property. Why? Because of the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who humbled himself, though he deserved all the glories of heaven. He came as a child, a weak and helpless infant. The creator of all things was held in the arms of his creation. Ocean Park, those of you who are in authority must remember that you have, as the text says, a greater authority to answer to. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated in the place of honor at the right hand of the Father, Your employee is not a number. He is a person. Your employee is not a resource to be exploited. She is an image bearer of God. There is no dividing line between your faith and your business. There is no separation between your work and your worship. As Christians, we are held to a higher standard by a higher authority. Our ultimate goal is not the bottom line, our shareholders, or the expense report. Our ultimate goal is to bring glory to our master, Jesus Christ, which is only accomplished when we... uh, Follow the footsteps and the manner of life that Jesus lived and we work for love and for justice and humility. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not a power or position or authority, but greatness in the kingdom of heaven is in serving one another as Christ served his disciples. Ocean Park, as we close... I ask you this, how are you serving those under your authority? Maybe it's the children in your classroom. Maybe it's the employees at your work. Maybe it's the contractors that you hire out for your business. Maybe it's the children that run around in your home that you teach or try to teach week to week. Are you working diligently for the glory of God? Are you treating them and and working in the manner of the humility and meekness of our Savior? By the power of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ transforms our life with others in our marriages, in our family, and especially in our work. Every relationship, whether it be marriage, family, work, your studies, uh, is in every moment in work and rest and play is to reflect the life of Christ that transforms the hearts of sinful, rebellious people to vessels of glory and honor for Jesus Christ. 